Brought to you by Wild Foods Co. Let's take a second to talk about Wild Foods. Wild Foods is a food company that puts quality, sustainability, and health first in all of their products. They have everything from coffee to fish oil, and every single product is painstakingly sourced from small farms around the globe. They take their mission seriously to fix the broken food system and believe real food is medicine. They've partnered with us to give you guys an exclusive discount, so use the code MAGIC for 12% off your order. There is so much research out there on the benefits of mushrooms, and I add their mushrooms to my coffee every morning, along with their cacao butter and their MCT oil, and then I also end my day with their Cocoa Tropic, which is a proprietary blend of mushrooms, turmeric, and cacao powder and it's reishi mushrooms, so that's great for anti-anxiety and just for ending your day on a relaxing note. And I also use their fish oil every day and their Himalayan sea salt. So, I mean, they've really got it all, you guys. They also just released a bar that's keto friendly. It tastes amazing and it comes in at only two grams per bar. So this means, you know, none of the sugar alcohols and it's all the protein and fat that you need to fuel your low carb lifestyle. With natural ingredients like almond butter and collagen, this bar is an amazing addition to your routine while still adhering to the primary values of wild foods. Wild Foods is real food with real ingredients, and our listeners get 12% off their entire order. That's right. We're offering our listeners 12% off of the entire order. So sign up at wildfoods.co slash discount slash magic hour. Again, go to wildfoods.co slash discount slash magic hour to get your discount. Greetings, boys and babes. It's the Magic Hour, a place where we navigate through life's peaks and valleys with all the vulnerability and shamelessness we can muster. With the help of world-class guests from all walks of life, we uncover new truths and valuable tools for manifesting our highest potential. I'm your host, Mercedes Terrell, along with my partner in shine, Jade Rice. Hey, you guys. We've got a really good episode for you today. It's all about freeing yourself from sexual shame. It's crazy to me that like some people shame others for their sexuality and then others are like, you know, in groups where like groups like what our guest today leads Mm -hmm. in is like, um, you know, where they come together and celebrate their sexuality, even around certain kinks or fetishes and things like bondage. So I always wonder what it is that sets people on either path, such polarizing paths too. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's definitely to do with, you know, like we always say, the domestications that brought Mm -hmm. them to who they are today. But yeah, I mean, for instance, my background makes me have this like shame core specifically around sexuality, especially because of the religious, you know, Mm -hmm. family I grew up in on my grandparents' side. Me too. Yeah. Oh, so there's just all kinds of different facets that can create that in a person. And so I think it is really interesting. I'm I'm interested to see what our guest has to say about her own upbringing because she's so free, you know, in that nature. Um, And I know there's going to be a lot of important information that we get into today. And I think for my own sex life, I really want to work on intimacy, especially in the bedroom. So um, I'm excited to see what our guest has to offer. On yes. all that. Our guest today spent over 20 years as a trial attorney and social justice lobbyist who owned her own law office. She walked away at the height of her career to fulfill her mission to support healthy sexuality and relationship as an intimacy coach. She is also a professionally certified surrogate partner, a certified tantra practitioner, a certified conscious uncoupling coach. On the milder side, she's a yoga teacher. And on the not so milder side, she specializes in feminine dominance and passionate bonds. She is an advisor at the School of Consent and a Wheel of Consent workshop facilitator. She organizes the Sacred Sexuality Austin Meetup and the East Austin Kinksters and hosts the Uncaged Love blog and the Surrogate Partner Salon. She promotes the evolution of humanity through healthy love, sex, and intimacy. River Waring, welcome to the Magic Hour. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really honored. Yeah, we, we're the excited. The show is so wonderful. You guys are doing oh, a thank great you. job. Thank you. That. For our listeners, our previous guest, Peter Craig, who we've had on 
twice. Um, he's the one that really wanted us to have River on. And, and the more we looked her up, the more we were like, yeah, we got to do it. So we're so excited. Here we are. Yeah. yeah. So River, why the switch from being a powerful lawyer at the Texas Capitol to becoming an NCMAC coach? Because that's such a big switch. It is a big switch. You know, I grew up without spirituality. I, I was grown up, I, I was raised in a religion, but I mm-hmm. didn't, it didn't make sense to me. So I really was an atheist and I had one of those big fallout moments, one of those black holes, you know, and I was in my law career and things were pretty much going well for the career and for politics. I was a super hardcore activist and all of a sudden it just felt like nothing had any meaning. And I sat there for like a year in a space with blankness, just like, what? I felt like everything about life was really stupid and boring and dumb and like nothing made, nothing got me excited anymore. I just felt like life was so meaningless. Hmm. And then after a year of sitting around doing almost nothing, uh, just waiting, what I decided was I don't want to do anything anymore that doesn't have meaning. And I'm not going to do anything else until it has meaning. So all I would do is get up and go to work and come home and just sit in my living room until waiting for something to have meaning. And it was a year of that before I literally was like, well, wait a minute, at least my sexual fantasies at least interest me, you know, at least mildly. Mm. And I, and at least I get a little tingly feeling in my body when I have a sexual fantasy. And then I, I don't know it all just came clear to me that my fantasies have always been kinky. They've always been dominant, submissive type themes. And I typed in Austin BDSM into the computer back there in 2006 or five. Mm. And all this stuff came up and there was the whole kink community. Hmm. And it was suddenly like, whoa, I feel something in my body. Like I've got to follow this. Mm -hmm. At least something is exciting me. Something is meaningful in some way, even if it is my sexual fantasy. Mm -hmm. So I went into that world and couldn't believe how wonderful it was and how I had never spoken before about my fantasies to anyone. Mm, wow. But all of a sudden I was in an environment where they were nothing, you know, right. totally not judged mm. for it. They were mild, if anything, yeah. in that really. Group. Oh yeah. So it was like, wow, I'm just so relieved. I felt like I could really be myself. Mm. And then I started thinking, I wonder what other subcultures or communities are here in Austin. Yeah. I, you know, how did I not know about these thousands of people getting together? Yeah, I didn't know until I wrote your bio. <laughs> really? Well, now it's like forty or 50,000 people in Austin. Holy moly. In the kink world. Oh, my yeah. God. So that was before FetLife. And so then at that point, I started thinking, well, I'm going to find every subculture in Austin. Like, there's got to be more stuff going on. And I did. <laughs> and uh, one of those was the Toltec path. Uh, yeah. And at that time, Heather Ash Amara. Yeah, we've Ray had her on also. You've had Heather Ash on? Twice. Yeah, twice. I didn't we love see her. that. I didn't yeah. see that. She's so dear to me. I saw her last weekend. Nice. Uh, and when I saw her for the first time, my heart just opened. Yeah, and, she has that effect. Oh, and I just, I spent five years with she and Raven um, apprenticing mm. and taking every course and workshop and everything they do. Yeah. Uh, so I went to her last workshop in Austin. Oh, did you? That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, I was really deep in that community when they were here. And mm-hmm. so well, I guess what I'm saying is that just it was my sexuality that started the excitement and then the inquiry into what else is there. Mm-hmm. And I found Ash really close to the, that early time. And so then my spirituality and my sexuality started blossoming together, mm-hmm. you know, really opening up at the same time. And so after years of it was five years, I think, into my spiritual cleaning that spirit gave me the message. And just like, you're here to be a sexual healer. I can remember mm. exactly where I was. We were in ritual in Toltec. I was laying down on the floor and I remember sitting up like, oh my God, I know, I know everything. I know everything. I know everything I need to do from now on. And since that moment, I really haven't done anything but pursue this purpose. Wow. And so it, I knew, you know, I need to find a way to get the training I need 
I need to find a way to uh, start a business, a different business. And then I'm going to need to find a way to close down this law practice. And it's all going to take a long time, but that's fine. You know, so actually it took a few more years from that decision point to get more training, to start seeing clients and to close the business at the law practice. But it was no competition. You know, it was no competition because I had realized that doing divorce and custody lawsuits at the courthouse was so destructive, so mm. harmful. Yeah. You know? And I just, by that time, I had been doing it over 20 years. And I realized, I was just realized, like, I don't want any part of this anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, when I started as a lawyer, I thought divorce was something that we just all had to do. We wanted to end a marriage and that's just the way to do it. And I thought I was just serving in a kind of a needed capacity. Mm-hmm. But by the end of it, I realized, no, no, there's other ways to do this. And this is just awful. I can't imagine a worse thing to do with a family who wants to transition than go to court. Hmm. You know? Yeah. What are the what are the alternates that you came upon after going through that? For what? What are the alternates you came upon specifically? I mean, this is like a sideline to what we oh. plan to talk to you about today. <laughs> but yeah, to divorce a court and to family court and that type of thing, what are some better options? Well, a distant way away is in the Netherlands, they don't even have any court or lawyers in their divorces. They literally mm-hmm. just, and they don't understand our system. They're like, why would you hire someone and pay money to fight with your mm. lover? Hmm. And it does. And when you think about it, that doesn't even make sense. Yeah. And I remember looking at people, my clients and thinking, you used to sleep with him. Like, why are you giving me all of your savings right now to try to kill him? Right. And you know, this mm. is the last person you want. And this is the father of your children. Right. Uh, so there's other systems where they don't even use court for splitting up in custody. And then in America, at least we have some things now like conscious uncoupling which mm-hmm. is I went and got certified in that, which is a, an actual methodical process to take couples through breaking up in a way that brings everyone up to a higher level. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I and think then we're in- you can go to court and you can just fill the paperwork out. You don't need a lawyer, you know, because once yeah. you agree with how things should be with your partner, it's done. Mm-hmm. it's done. It's just paperwork. It's just a couple hundred dollars and a couple documents. Right. Yeah. Wow. Well, you had to take the long way to get to that conclusion. Yeah. (laughs) I'm curious. um, Mercedes uh, was like divorce stuck out to her. Kink stuck out to me. So I'm curious what, like, what's an example of like maybe a mild kink and then like the one, like an extreme kink. Okay. That's a great question. I love talking about it. Kink to me is a, um, non-normative sexual excitement and to me that's a really broad range and so one thing I don't like is how kink gets so pigeonholed into just like kind of one look Mm -hmm. like with a certain kind of outfit and one kind of activity which involves a lot of pain a lightweight kink might be something like submitting or dominating or a power exchange that just has to do with let's say dinner Mm. You know, you can be at dinner and enter into a one hour long power exchange and just have one person be the one who everything is going to be for, for Mm -hmm. that hour. And Mm -hmm. the other person, if they want to agree to submit to what's asked of them, there you go. You're actually Mm. having a kink dynamic because you're in power exchange. Mm. Is it, mm -hmm. I was going to say, is it always is kink always revolving uh, revolving around sexual polarity or that type of power struggle? You know, it's funny because most kink involves a power exchange. Okay. Not all kink is sex necessarily. The way I do it, it is. <laughs> but <laughs> some people involve engage in kink in ways like, for instance, tying rope. Mm-hmm. There are lots of people who play with rope and it may not end in a sexual episode, Okay, but they got uh, aroused during the rope play. Mm-hmm. The more, what did you, where did you use Jade? Um, deeper, kink. drastic kink. Oh, minor and more extreme. Maybe. Yeah, more extreme kink is definitely what I would think of would be more edge play. And when people say edge play and kink, they're actually usually talking about 
on the edge of your life. <laughs> uh, oh, things that like you like, could die. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like if it went too more far, extreme, you could die. Yes, yeah, more extreme. Goes in <laughs> yeah, that category. A lot more uh, I feel anxious. And so when you get into edge play, you want to be like very, very careful, very careful who your partner is, very yeah. careful what's going on and how you're going to play with that. So mm. you have to feel really safe first as a core, or maybe you don't. I don't know. Do, like, maybe you like the, not the feeling of safe. it being unsafe. Yeah. yeah. I was well, in both ways. Yeah, that's such a cool thing. What's and it's kind of amazing until you try it. It's hard to imagine. I, what I found is that it's amazing how many things that I can feel are real when I'm in a role play. That's what kind of amazes me. Hmm. So we can set up a safe environment and a safe container and with safe agreements. And I know my partner is going to be safe, and we have all these really yeah. safe agreements with one another. But within that safe container, I can dive down into a, a role play that I'm not safe. And it is amazing how hmm. much my body and my psyche can learn and go through the real, seemingly real experience uh-huh. of being unsafe. It's interesting. Mercedes and I have gotten um, a handful of emails over the years uh, with job offers. And some of them, there is a guy I remember that emailed us once asking if we would beat him up. like it was a turn on for him. And with each bone we broke, he'd give us a thousand dollars. I don't know if you remember this Mercedes like a decade ago. There's some Um, some strange ones that have come through. Yeah. I mean, there's the usual, like, will you pee on me? This type of stuff. It's like the common stuff, but that one always stuck out to me. And I remember the, the night I got this email, I cried myself to sleep because I thought what happened to this poor man that he wants to get beat up to feel arousal. And I was so, and my roommates were like, get over it. Let the man be turned on, like leave him alone. Let him have his fetish, you know, his kink. But, um, I, I think at the, I mean, I was only like 26 at the time, but I think at the time I kind of felt like, cause of sexual shame, maybe that if you had kinks or, um, uh, fetishes like that, that, mm-hmm. um, something bad must've happened to you basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, for me, I don't, play in a way that is there's any permanent damage you know of any kind Mm. and with that guy perhaps he really meant it perhaps he was getting Mm. off on the role play of it you Mm. know himself going that extreme imagine all like that yeah Mm. yeah i see yeah um we were also curious how you got your interesting name yeah oh my interesting name comes from the dow okay and um, are you guys familiar with the Tao Te Ching, the yeah. Tao and all that? I'm, in high school, I got so lucky and had a philosophy course in high school and got exposed to a lot of different ideas. And I really loved the Tao the most back then. And I still really do as a spiritual, which is follow nature. Mm. And the Tao is also known as the way. And the way, mm. another synonym for that is the river. So also uh, your job descriptions are all very intriguing, and but most listeners probably haven't heard of some of them before. Could you explain what a surrogate partner does as well as a conscious uncoupling coach? I'd love to. Conscious uncoupling coach is a little bit simpler in a way, is yeah. that we literally guide people through a beautiful, deep, soul-searching process to uncouple from your partner in a way that allows you to drop the old patterns that were Mm. no longer serving you and come into a totally new way of looking at the whole relationship and yourself so that you can really get that confidence and that vision and intention for your future with or without the person. A lot of people feel like conscious uncoupling is a breakup process, which it kind of is tailored to that. But I know a lot of people who've consciously uncoupled and then gotten back together because what they did was they dropped all the old unhealthy patterns Mm -hmm. and then they realized they still wanted to be together. Mm -hmm. So that was really cool. The surrogate partner is really where my heart is. And I Mm. do that most, that's the thing I do the most um, one-on-one with people. And a surrogate partner is a substitute partner. And so the program was designed by Masters and Johnson back in the 50s, but it's been modernized quite a bit. And it's designed for people who are in sex therapy and they're chatting with their sex therapist about their issues, 
but for some reason, they're really not able to get out there and practice all the solutions with other, you know, with partners. Um, a lot of times they have intense social anxiety. And mm. a lot of times I have like super late life virgins who just mm. have no experience and they feel frozen and unable to get out there and get a partner. So with their therapist and them, I step in as a substitute partner and I literally teach them all the skills of intimate partnership from communication to emotional um, expression all the way through into sexual expression mm. and take a person who was formerly unable to get into a partnership and hopefully turn out a person who is a wonderful lover and partner and can teach others how to be wonderful lovers and partners. It's really mm, the most amazing. satisfying one-on-one -on -one work I do. Wow. Mm. Mm. That's it's pretty really cool. touching to see. I mostly work with men mm -hmm. and it's really, that's what I was wondering. Beautiful. Yeah. I have had some women clients, but it is mostly men who seek this out right now. And I've seen such gorgeous transformations, you know, all the way from their posture changes, wow. their careers change and their career starts taking off and just everything about them changes. They have changed the way they dress, the way they walk. It's just so beautiful to see. So how does that work? What do you, what are some of the, the techniques you use in that work? Is it about um, you know, stroking their ego to a certain degree and allowing them to feel finally safe around a female uh, or to feel like they could approach someone to potentially have, um, you know, be able to court somebody or something like that just for the beginning stages? What does it look like? Well, I guess you may have heard about the Wheel of Consent, which mm -hmm. is another workshop I offer. And I think Peter talked about it. I, um, so I take the clients through the Wheel of Consent first one-on-one -on -one. and the wheel of consent is a way of learning about yourself and your body's desire and how to listen to your body's desire and follow that not your mind okay now most of us are used to thinking about sexual desire as something that is in our mind like oh when I think of sex I think of all these either porn scenes or I think of a mm. certain look that I like I wonder why we're conditioned that way we're can we're well our whole culture's built on the mind mm -hmm. right yeah. so and it shoves out sexuality and it certainly suppressed the body and embodiment and sexuality all at once so it's not a surprise that when we come and try to do sex we're all caught up in our minds because that's all we're given and so unfortunately that's not where sexuality lives <laughs> so yeah. you have a lot of people trying to connect with these like mental images of mm. sexuality it's not even where it lives anyway. So there ends up being no connection at all. Mm. So the wheel of consent allows a person to really find the desire that's inside their own body. You know, a lot of the social anxiety and performance anxiety also that men feel is really based on a lot of monkey mind. You know, it's really yeah. based on just a lot of worrying and a lot of thought mm. going on about what they should be doing and what other people yeah, are that's true. With them. And it's what the whole external world is putting on them as pressure. And right. so I let them Drake let go of all the external world and focus in on your own body and find mm -hmm. out what you love and want, and then find really clear, safe ways to express that and get that. And when any human finds that in themselves, any human, they become very sexy, mm. you know? And very confident. Yeah, I could use this work on myself. And so how does it work when it comes to the sexual acts? How do you coach them in that? Or well, do you? Yeah, yeah, we sure do. And the wheel of consent, again, it's like a, a base to start from mm -hmm. because in that we learn the four beautiful ways of touch that Betty Martin outlines. And we learn to figure out who it's for when we're touching. So what we can learn things by touching each other's hands mm -hmm. that actually completely make sense in the bedroom when things are hot and heavy, even in a multi-person orgy, the mm -hmm. same principles apply. Okay. So one thing I like to point out is like a lot of times 
in our current culture, the typical way, say in Austin, Texas, you've got tons of one night stands happening. I'm sure there are like mm-hmm. 100,000. the number one dating city in America. America. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Everywhere. And what's typically going on is, um, let's say man and woman, the man gets together with the woman and they go back to someone's home and suddenly both of them want to get out their best moves that they've ever learned, right? And show the other one the cool moves they've got. And the man is actually, contrary to popular belief, usually really trying hard to figure out how to please the female and push her buttons Mm -hmm. and, you know, get her happy. And the female is usually in service to the man, trying to make sure that Mm -hmm. everything is cool there. And so what you have is two people interacting with touch and nobody has their own desire mm-hmm. in the mix. And so you have two people trying to like please one another and therefore nobody's desires being met at all. Mm. And it causes a lot of a hmm. lot of conflict and friction and also a lot of awkwardness yeah. and confusion, right? Because it's awkward. Yeah. So a couple of things we talk in the wheel of consent is number one, the most important thing is knowing who is this for? So let's just say like, Jade, if I'm going to enter into a touch with you, who is it for? We need to know that if it's for me, then I don't want to hear from you other than your limit. Mm -hmm. So anytime I hit a limit of yours, I want to know that. And in the wheel of consent, the limit is known when anything in your body clenches up when you're no longer giving from an open heart. So if I were going to be touching Jade, it'd be like, Jade, may I touch you for five minutes? Mm -hmm. And whenever you start to clench up or close down in any way, and you're no longer giving with an open heart, will you let me know? Okay. As long as we have that agreement, I can have freedom to do what I really want to do. Mm -hmm. Now, if I said, Jade, now can I touch you for you? And if she did say yes, then what would I do? What would you do? Yeah. What would I do? <laughs> Jade, times, Jade would have to tell you. Think, what most people think is like, this is where I'll get out all my cool moves mm. and I'll show the other person how I can do things to them that make them so excited because I'm doing it for them. Mm-hmm. But in the wheel of consent, what we say is actually you don't have a fucking idea what the other person wants until you ask them. Mm-hmm. So if I said, Jay, can I touch you for you? And if she did say yes, I'd say, great, what would you like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we rarely have those kind of pure interactions in the typical sex world, right? Yeah, true. So, That's really true, yeah. Yeah, so we can learn that on hands and with clothes on, but then when we get, because when, our, when we get naked or we start touching genitals or we have more people involved, then the intensity rises Mm -hmm. and it's a lot harder to stay in our internal practice when the intensity rises. Mm -hmm. And so we want to learn these principles in really safe places. Right. You know, I wonder if massages are a good way to practice because it's almost like you have to tell them how much deep tissue you want and what part of your body needs it the most, you know? Well, that is one possible way to practice in a massage scenario you're usually it's even though I'm getting a massage and it's for me, I'm usually handing over a lot of the expertise to them because they're trained in some technique. Right. So I'm like, it's for me, but do what you do. Right. Um, But it it takes a lot of work on, on the person's part that's receiving as well, because they've got to be able to voice all that. For me, that's the scariest thing you've said so far is having to ask for what you want. And that's probably a big PCC in your work, getting people to be comfortable with that is a major effort, especially, do you see it more in women than men, that being an issue? Actually, no, it's even. (laughs) It's interesting how the culture works differently on the two genders, but that is even. In the Wheel of Consent, one of the practices we do is we, I put up on the board, why don't we ask for what we want? Just do it right now. Like, what are some reasons, just a few reasons that we don't ask for what we want? Because we're afraid that we won't get it and then we'll feel ashamed about asking in the first place. We'll feel rejected, Mm -hmm. not valued. Yeah. Any other reasons? I'll shame Base. Maybe also there's something for me, I think um, I'm worried I'll seem selfish, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm there to serve. I feel a pressure to be there t- for what I can give and yeah. not what I can take. 
That's a common reason. Or what if we ask for the thing and then it doesn't give us the satisfaction we were hoping it does. And now I don't know what that means at the end of that sentence, but. Yeah, mm. that's another great common that's reason. Weird. There are so many reasons. And then we go through or that some of us just expect them to already know, right? That's true. Yes. And mm-hmm. so then that's what the next question is. What do we do instead mm-hmm. of asking? We just don't ask. And then we just hope they figure it out. Or another. Exactly. So then that might turn into pouting. But it's also, mm-hmm. I think, why men, we've said it before, why men don't ask us what we like, because they feel a pressure to already know, because we put that pressure on them. Like, you should already know what I want, what I need. Yep, exactly. Yeah, toxic masculinity. Exactly. We're breeding it into the men. <laughs> so yeah. if we can set these scenarios up more, then each person can practice finding their own desire and getting what they truly deeply want. And <laughs> um, another thing I love that you said, Mercedes, is that I don't know of anything more vulnerable or scary than asking for what I want. Mm -hmm. And especially when we get in the bedroom, because if if I go down into my truest, deepest desires, Mm -hmm. it might freak someone out. Yeah. So, Mm. I mean, that is very scary and risky to give that other person what I, what I want. Because now they're really going to know me and see me. They may run screaming. They may judge me. Um, if I'm in a long-term relationship, I may risk the relationship. Hmm. We recently recently recorded with a guest that brought up the Gottman cards and they, they're sex questions. And it's a really, um, makes it, even though it is kind of a sacred talk, it kind of makes it a more casual way to talk about what mm-hmm. turns you on. Um, yeah, it's so, a helpful tool for, yeah. for having that discussion. But for me, I think too, it's about like... Like I've asked for things I wanted before and I've taken that vulnerable step and, you know, found a safe feeling time to ask for those things and then ask for them and they don't happen. So then you feel this like floating rejection that every time you're in the circumstance where it could be where I want it to happen and it's not. Now it's like, do I have to ask again during sex or during the time when that would be where I want it to happen? And it becomes... Now I'm like just always on the verge of rejection because it's not happening. So I'm feeling this floating rejection. Does that make sense what I'm saying mm. here at all? Well, what it seems like is you've asked it, it, either the person either said no or ignored it or somehow didn't give it to you. Mm-hmm. And then it just feels like maybe you're, um, it's one of those like, well, I don't want to do that again. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, no, and it's uh, the conversation is always open ended where it's not like a hard no, it's not like a um, uh. there's never a no, it just doesn't actually happen. So that's mm. you know, mm. and I'm sure that happens. Guys probably listening have the same ideas, you know, they've got their own ideas of things they want that don't end up happening. And it's not even, I don't like if I put myself in this flip position. And someone asked me, hey, I, I want to try this thing. Or I want to do this thing. And then we get into a circumstance where it could happen. If they don't prompt me then, then I probably will stay in my comfort zones and like do the things that I'm interested in. And But I, I think if you do, like you were saying earlier, if you set aside time for you and your partner to like do this trade of who's going to dictate what's happening, you know, to, to the person that's getting the pleasure happening for them at the moment and then swap that. So everybody gets a fair equal amount of time. That could be a good way to walk that mm. into your room. Yeah. I don't know. That's so like true. It. Even after all these years of what I've been doing, I still sometimes set the timer with lovers just for oh, games wow. like that. Yeah. Just for games like that. Like, let's just yeah. do this for 20 minutes, both ways, just for fun. And crazy stuff comes out. Yeah. <laughs> like, because it's now it's like a game and you got to try something new and try something different, you know, mm-hmm. whatever you've been thinking about, but not really like conjuring the energy to really put it out there yet. <laughs> exactly. So when you were mentioning that um, when you first in 2005, 2006 or whatever it was, when you, you typed into Google, you know, Austin kink and you noticed that your kinks did not even hold a candle to anything else that was going on out there. Would you tell us what your kinks were at that time? Oh, I have no problem with that. They're still, (laughs) I was going to say, well, they're still there. They've added a lot on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. No, mine are my situation that I've fantasized about my entire, I've literally never had a fantasy that wasn't kinky to this Hmm. day. 
ever from the minute I can remember. Man, I and feel it, so plain Jane. Uh, <laughs> you may be surprised if you look closer at yours. I don't know. but They um, all involve Ruby Rose. Uh, I've heard you mention her. <laughs> She's so I know. Um, I, I, I'm going to watch myself if I shouldn't cuss on this. Oh, no, you're fine. No, you're fine. I'll put a listed on it. Don't worry. Okay. Um, oh, but yeah. Uh, my, I've always had a fantasy that I am submitting to an authority figure who, you know, and so, and I do things for them out of curiosity and, Mm. um, and desire that I couldn't otherwise express myself, but they're suggesting I do things that I really do want to do. Um, so it's a kind of, it's, I've never had a fantasy where I was cut up or hurt or beat or flogged or whipped not really not really involving pain at all I've learned to really enjoy some sensation play with pain a lot but um but mine or mine are psychological my um desires have to do with a devotion and worship kind of um, atmosphere okay a lot of times and so if like even when I play, sometimes someone be like, well, tie me up. I'm like, no, you keep your hands there. Mm. You know, like you, you, you should, I want you to want to do what I say and do it mm. because you're going to do it because you want to, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? I don't need to have to tie you. Yeah. That's very psychological, mm-hmm. not so physical. Mm-hmm. 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 I use a few toys, but my more interesting place is psychological. Yeah, mm. I get that. So I, I wonder too that, you know, Jane, Jay just said she feels like a plain Jane, but mm-hmm. we all have different starting points, you know, mm-hmm. and I wonder, do you see any kind of pattern or psychology to the way that people come to you as clients, maybe um, where you can see that their starting point was kind of almost predictable because they came from this background, whereas someone who might be more, you know, extreme with their fetish or their kink came from a totally different upbringing, domestications. That yeah, it's a good question. You know, to yeah. being this way now. That's a great question. Yeah, what I have seen is that um, our kink fantasies are, they're, they're actually like symbols and our kink fantasies are kind of like nighttime dreams. Okay. You know, and you know how when you have a nighttime dream, they can seem kind of confusing yeah. to reality. Mm-hmm. But there may be many people who could help you interpret that toward different parts of your reality. So in other words, I have never seen a direct core, uh, just a line drawn mm-hmm. between like, you had this kind of childhood, you have this kind of fantasy. Mm-hmm. It's more of a puzzle to start unwinding and inquiring into what the deeper themes are in the fantasies and how they might relate. Yeah. The workshops that Peter and I are doing right now, erotic foundations one and two, we're going into the work of the erotic mind by Jack Morin, the book and the wheel of consent. And we, uh, and in that book, Jack Morin, he really has an intriguing idea, which is that we can heal ourselves through our peak sexual experiences Mm. and that some of our fantasies Mm. are symbols of our most painful emotional challenges as children. Wow. Eroticized. Mm. And when I think of, for instance, and so being able to do those is healing is what you, yeah. Like we've had this very difficult emotional challenge as a child and then not directly in a super linear way that's really simple to understand. But if we look at it long enough, we can see how it kind of twisted into this like a nighttime dream way Mm. of changing into eroticizing Mm. the opposite of that pain. And in this sense, we have control over it, whereas we didn't the other time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So now, like, for instance, I can enter into a situation where I'm dominated in real life, and I agree mm-hmm. to do it with a partner who I have all these safety measures around, right? And it may seem like I'm giving up my power, but it can be an act of power mm. to 
put myself in a vulnerable position through my own power and my own agreement. And I know exactly when I can stop it when I say it stops. And so I'm taking power over the vulnerable position that I may have used to feel as a child and just cried over it and collapsed. Yeah, it makes total sense. So, so when you do that, let's say you're working through, by the way, is this, is there any better reason to give to work through your traumas uh, besides like finding your kinks and then going after them? Um, I like that as motivation. <laughs> yeah. I a more fun healing method. I'm over here trying to tell people to journal. There's like That's very funny. little motivation behind that compared to <laughs> your way of doing it, River. I like that um, but I was wondering if, as we use a tool like that to work through these, um, maybe traumas, I want to call it, I don't know if that's too extreme of a word. Sometimes maybe it's not extreme enough, but as we work through these places that are from our past and, um, hold some sort of, uh, turbulence for us, do we less, like, does the kink that held that trauma or wanted you know our subconscious was trying to work through that trauma through does it begin to recede at all or is it in an always kink is it a perpetual kink that is a really beautiful question and through my own life experience and in also hearing from other people what I who've had the same kind of thing they say I went into this kink world like I said way back then and I acted that roll out over and over in, you know, slightly different variations. I acted that one out for years, actually, in different variations. And, uh, and it was thrilling, you know, mm-hmm. it was totally thrilling. And then I believe it did start to dissipate a bit okay. and the thrill of it. And now that I've found the Jack Morin book, I do believe that I can also remember, I told you, I found my spirituality at the same time. So I was developing my spiritual life also at the same time. And so I believe that both through opening and cleaning my energy with Heather Mm Ash, as well as living out this fantasy over and over, I was healing on both sides. And that it's kind of because I stand right now in a different relationship to those old past wounds. Yeah. That I now stand in a different relationship to that exact scene and kink. Mm-hmm. And it, it will always be a home base for me. Right. You know, yeah. like there are certain things you can do that just get me turned on in one minute if it's done well. Right. Um, <laughs> and I've also, it's almost like it, moved, it, it it got a chance to happen over and over. I lived it out. I've, I've explored it. Right. And it's like it opened a door to allow new things in. For sure. You so then I went down and had a, stage a whole one. new road of <laughs> new fantasies came in, you know? Yeah, I get it. No, yeah. yeah. And so it's just like a journey, a constant journey to explore. Whoa, I wonder why I'm having that desire now. That is mm-hmm. wild. And I wonder what that ties back to. That's so cool. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, it's really fascinating. It's like It's like reaching a you know, a a goal in a video game, and then it unlocks a whole new world after that, in a sense, but it's really cool that you can tie it to healing. And I think even because a lot of the time intimacy is partnered, you know, and um, it involves another person that if you can find a way to know the person you're with psyche, be open enough to talk about the kink and figure out how they relate. It's a probably a really cool place to hold the type of therapy that you're doing. I mean, you're doing this work, essentially. You're breaking into the psyche by using sexuality and it's really beautiful. So I love it. Yeah. Thank now you. I'm going to become obsessed. Look at what's <laughs> happening right now. Uh, your, your original kink was your gateway drug. And then once you just can't stop, I guess. Um, want to talk to you about what exactly it means to be sex positive. Well, uh, now that word is for me, simply that I believe our sexuality is a positive life force. It's really kind of that simple. In today's world, the people in my circles who I'm around, that's a given. Okay. It's, all, it's just like, duh, I know that. But yeah. It doesn't take far for me to find people who wouldn't agree with that, such as my mother. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so there are, I think it just is a division between people who see sex as scary and awful and a sin. Mm-hmm. That's not sex positivity. 
And so simply saying sex positive is people mm. who agree that it is a positive force and are interested yeah. in and open to talking about it. And how do you think that we are held back like through society shaming our sexuality specifically for men and women in different ways? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> if it's okay, I would really love to talk about men on this one. Okay. Um, and because I do not value men more than women, but I do believe that women's issues are currently now finally being discussed mm -hmm. more, but I do look over toward men now at this moment in time, and I have a lot of empathy for their situation. Mm -hmm. And so this is how I see our society harming men. If you don't mind me going on a little thing here, I just, I'll yeah. try to give you the quick pieces and you can decide if you want to talk about anything of the, I'm going to say a little more. Okay. We would, I just want to also just set the stage for this because I have no idea what you're about to say, but just the, yeah. the energy I'm feeling from what you're about to say. Yeah. We on this podcast specifically, uh, you know, Jade and I have been models for a long part of our career. So of course we've attracted a lot of eyes from men. So they have been a big support system in our lives and finding a way to bridge the gap between what's happening in the world right now with the feminist movement, the Me Too movement, everything like that. But also understanding that men are going through this transition with us and need to be supported in all of what's happening there is yeah. a really important part of the show. So I yeah, yeah, I'm totally anti-patriarchy. But what that actually, I believe patriarchy has harmed men in exactly as much as women. Mm. It's, it's actually harming everybody. And so this is how I think we treat men. And, and I'm going to talk about the United States of America because that's the only country I really know. Mm -hmm. um, this is what we do. First of all, the day after they're born, we cut the most sensitive part of their genitals yeah. off for no reason. Mm -hmm. And can we get probably a lot of people debating that, but we will not we would not tolerate genital mutilation of females in the United no, States of America. Right. And I have teaming, I'm teaming up with Morgan Taylor to present a movie screening of American circumcision on. Yeah. Facebook. I'm really passionate so about that. I, okay, I'll help you promote that. We've got to get real about what that does to a child mm -hmm. traumatically pre-verbally when we, and that is the most sensitive part of their entire bodies if you look at nerve ending count per square inch, it, it, that is insane. Okay. And so we cut their sensitive part off. And now today I heard a complaint, men aren't sensitive. Hmm. I, and I just, I get really mad. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's number one. That's the starting of their life. Then after that, we don't apologize for that. <laughs> there's never a time later where we're like, you know, I'm sorry. Did you really want that? That's never acknowledged, mm -hmm. which just like what trauma does is when it's unacknowledged, it just stays there and builds and sits and festers and creates problems. Right. Mm -hmm. But here's my big one. I have never heard anyone else talk about this, but it's just driving me crazy. After that, as soon as they can understand language, we tell little boys, don't show your boner in public. Mm. So do not have an erection 99% of your life. So you can't have it in school, church, really don't do it at home. If mom doesn't want to see it, don't do it. Um, even with a girlfriend until it's just that magic time. Don't let your body have its natural movement, movement and motion. And don't do that. And so what I don't think we realize that when we hold their body down, Mm -hmm. we hold their emotions and their thought processes down as well because a man is going to try to interpret that as I can't feel aroused 99% of my life. Mm. So like I can go to the grocery and be totally juiced up and which I do <laughs> and I can live juicy, you know, and I can go just be like love how the butterflies look and the wind feels on my skin and feel really turned on all day long. But a guy, 99% of his life does not have that. And I am getting really burned up about that because then we turn to men and criticize them. Oh, where's your erection? Mm. During this 1% of the time when you're supposed to have it immediately mm. pop up at attention. Right. So I'm calling think about that. erectile dysfunction 
cultural dysfunction because we're the ones telling them to have a very unnatural, very unhealthy relationship to their erection, which is not just their body, but it also is part of their emotional life. We criticize men for not having emotions. We won't let them. Mm. And it just burns me up. Boner shame burns me up. Yeah. (laughs) I literally have never heard any other human talk about it. So I have two questions. So I'm curious, um, because I understand the boner shame part. I completely do. But um, so for me, I was molested growing up. And so I've... um, I, I don't live in the fear, but I'm super sensitive to my kids saying sexual things or doing sexual things because I don't know mm. where they learned that from. Did, was, was there a predator that said this to you? So the other day, my son asked if we could have a private parts party and it scared the crud out of me because I thought that sounds like something a predator would say. Mm. Who said that to you? And so I'm trying to find the balance of not, uh, I don't want him to not feel comfortable in sexual sayings or with his body parts. But my initial reaction was, who asked you to have that? What do you think happens at that? Like to con- to ask questions. So I'm trying to find the balance, you know, to let him, it's hard. I feel it's a little bit hard when you come from a background that I do because you're, yes. you just get so um, startled mm-hmm. by yes. that because you want to protect your kids and make sure that nothing, you know, yeah. but you also want them to feel free in their sexuality and in their expression. So um, boner, right. him having an erection doesn't, you know, I'm just like, it's nothing. We don't pay, you know, we don't make a big deal about it, but something yeah. like that, I, I have a hard time not making a big deal of cause it scares me. So. And where had he found out about that? That's a pretty big word for a little kid. He said he made it up and I asked, well, what do you do at private park parties? And he was like, we dance and watch what our privates do. <laughs> so I don't know if he's just creative, but yeah. it's, it scared the heck yeah, out of me. I see why Jade. Yeah. Can see why, and uh, um, actually, I've had women more than one, many actually, many women tell me that they don't want to be around an erection for several hmm. reasons. Um, a lot of women feel like if there's an erection, that's a signal that they have to do something. Mm-hmm. That it's like a and, and like a demand. And I think, gosh, that's not that's sad. But if we don't start coming to terms with the erections, we're never going to get over these false concepts of what they mean. Like a guy, if a guy has an erection, he did not say you need to do something about it. If he says you need to do something about it, then he Mm. said you need to do something about it. But just having the erection, we need to get more comfortable with our natural body movements. Mm -hmm. And I don't see how we're going to overcome either side of gender sexual issues without dealing with some of these things. I don't see how we expect men to, uh, perform after all that beating down. Right. You know? And then there are more examples like this woman had this beautiful video online where she was talking about how, have you heard that phrase? Men always want sex. No, no. I mean, it sounds like a phrase. I figured, but <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that so many times. Like men always want sex. Men always want sex. I, I heard that they uh, like a statistic that they think about it like every seven mm-hmm. seconds or something like that. Yeah. Well, For me, I heard that phrase and really didn't think much of it. You know, I just kind of moved on in life. Like, oh, I guess whatever. I guess they do. But this woman pointed out that is a very damaging phrase. What gender flip that? Hmm. Would we accept people saying women always want sex? And does that even allow Hmm. them to to have consent? Or are they just always Hmm. wanting it? And doesn't that even block the idea of them ever being raped? Because mm-hmm. they could never be raped if they always wanted. Mm-hmm. And so, and also she was pointing out how a lot of times women will walk up and just feel all over men and just, you know, like, oh, mm-hmm. I love your muscles. Oh my goodness. Your bald head. Like, it's a bald well, head. Well, you always want sex. You know, I'm sure you love this. Right. But that's not fair. And if we gender flip all of that, that's really that's a rape true. culture. I also wanted, the other question I had was about circumcision. Um, So I know that our culture believes it's for sanitation purposes uh, and that from what I, from what I know, yeah, religious and and sanitary, that's the argument I hear the most is sanitary. It's, it's sanitary. It's for, so you don't get infection, hygiene, hygiene. but I know that um, 
it's it's now considered cosmetic in most states, which is amazing because that means maybe um, we're you know going in the right direction. But um, the argument I hear too is just that um, well the the father circumcised and we don't want him to feel different. And I was um, reading that by the time like for my kids are three and four, by the time they're in high school, it's really going to be 50, 50 because of the cosmetic switch. And so that's, that's a huge relief, but I was not aware when I gave birth to my son, I was not aware and not as conscious as, as I am now of the situation and, and all of the, I just didn't have all the knowledge and, um, I just let his dad decide. Um, but my son's, um, circumcision was really traumatic. He, oh, um, no. the dad, the, his dad was supposed to go with him. It wasn't a good situation in the hospital. He ended up, didn't end up going with him so that my son went and I had a very traumatic pregnancy, a lot of anxiety and depression. So I'm sure he already had a rough start to his emotional side of his life, but they took him to get a circumcision. They did it wrong. Um, and they said that they'd be right back. Uh, so much time went by and I had a C-section, so I couldn't even get up. Uh, um, and so they finally come in over an hour later when they said it would be like 20 minutes over an hour later, they come in and they say, um, uh, we're not going to be able to bring him back in here. He's still freaking out. He's still too worked up. He's only two uh, days old. Uh, and they're like, he's still too worked up. We're going to uh, continue to try to calm him down. And they, they said they're going to have to redo it also. Um, and so this to me was like, the, I was bawling cause I just thought what a rough start to your life that like you're taken out of your mother's belly through an emergency C-section and then you're snipped. Like they don't numb them or anything. Like you're just snipped in the most painful place. And so this has been something that I've beat up myself on for four years now. It's my biggest regret in parenting. I cry every time I read about it. And so I'm curious what for, cause so many, I Every time I post about it, dozens of mothers are like, me too. I cry about this too. I'm so sad. What can we do? Not necessarily so that we can feel better, but so that we can feel like we're undoing that damage. Is there anything? Right now. Yeah. Talking about it. I think Mercedes is right. I mean, um, that's it is to raise the awareness for others. And I really empathize with you, Jade. And I hope- Like when my son gets hurt, he, when he gets hurt, he- panics. And I'm always like, Oh, it's PTSD from what I've done to you. I've, I removed a part of your body. And I feel like I always have to apologize to him, which I I know that's so confusing. So I don't, but I just wondered if there was something we could do for them individually Mm. at all. I love how aware you are. And if, if, if I were in your shoes, one thing I would consider is really just, and I know Jade, that you have done so much research on trauma and healing and to really be with your son in those moments, because we can heal through trauma. You know that, mm-hmm. right? And so the, your awareness to why he might be having the trauma and being there with him as you, I'm sure you know many techniques for healing trauma, you know, being with a person calmly, you know, giving them your presence, letting them know you're there, it's safe. So I think just as we would with anyone who has trauma. I have trauma from the past, you know, just um, they have trauma too. And we need to work with, be with them every second to heal them. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine what a great mother you must be. Oh, <laughs> but I think as we would with every, every child, you know, that every child's going to have traumas. We need to be there with them, hear them, let them have those emotions that may be stuck mm-hmm. in their bodies and then raise the awareness for other mothers and fathers because I'm. Uh, it's surprising how few people I think are really it's, aware. I know, absolutely. Yeah. Luckily, most of my friends' kids are not circumcised, so it is becoming a little bit more the norm. Maybe it's just the group I'm around. But I was also um, I read something on your site about how circumcision also affects women sexually, mm-hmm. and I thought I don't think I had never heard that, and I don't think many people have. So could you share that if? Oh, I was hoping you know what I'm speaking of. Okay, so important. I think that's so important. Um, It it was fascinating to me too. Um, So the uncircumcised penis is a piece of skin is over the tip of the penis, and the penis was designed to have a mucous membrane on the tip, which means that it would be just like the inside of our mouth 
or something, it would have mucus and that covering of skin mm -hmm. over it protects, you know, that sensitive mucus area and keeps it moist. And in those, and the reason it has the mucus and the covering over it is because those, that's the most sensitive part. Mm. So it's protected until it's needed for something like sex. And mm. then the skin rolls back a bit and this very sensitive part comes out. When that's cut off, then this mucus tip dries up and loses sensitivity. And so the part that we usually see on the tip of a cock is this is that this the circumcised that's dry skin was supposed to be much much more sensitive and covered, mm. and now now the part for the woman when the man is covered with the skin there, and then when he inserts into her, mm -hmm. then the skin pulls back and the mucusy soft juicy part of him would enter her. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that sound like kind of comfortable compared to, right? you know, I mean, I'm trying to not get turned on right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's this gentle, soft thing that comes yeah. inside you. And then not only that, pre lubricated, it's lubricated. Yeah. Yeah. And then the skin that's there is designed to literally stroke the G spot mm. while the intercourse is happening in and out. And so then women having the um, ejaculatory G-spot orgasms used to be a very common thing. And now it's like some kind of freak show. So yeah. Great. You don't really hear of women squirting anymore. I feel like it's, I never hear that. So and that's what you, on your site, it says that was one of the things that causes a woman to squirt is that. Yeah. yeah. This, this skin is mm -hmm. designed to allow that kind of orgasm. And mm. if you had a G-spot orgasm, it's a completely different experience than just the clitoris orgasm. Hmm. Hmm. And that was supposed to be available to us and want to make us have sex. So we'd have the babies. Yeah. And, um, and now you have men being literally put down by women and others yeah. and saying like, don't just pound me, you know, don't just come mm. here and do this. I, that hurts. Like, and you also hear women um, like there was that movie, Bad Moms, where they made fun of an uncircumcised penis. Like we're making fun of their natural state, you know? Yeah. And that would Not actually feel better for us and be mm -hmm. more healthy for us and them. Mm -hmm. Because that mucous membrane also is very protective, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. of many things. So it's just, it would be a completely different experience. And it's really sad to me that because of all this circumcision, the act of penis and vagina intercourse is actually nothing like what it was designed to even be anymore. I wonder why so many men are so um, firm on their stance of circumcision. Well, if they're already cut, then they don't want to say that the other way is better because now they yeah. feel inadequate. That's true. It's true. And I actually feel pretty interested in, in that question because I think that is holding back. Mm-hmm progress but sure. I totally agree with you Mercedes I was thinking like whoa what if I actually was a man who was cut that's mm. a lot to deal with yeah and, and having a son this, you yeah. don't you know your son's going to question that and you're going to have to convince I mean it's a whole thing that might you know if a guy sat with that they might realize it's revolving around their ego that's tied to their penis in some you know way I think a lot of it a lot of it has to do though with the way women decide to voice their opinions on what they prefer and mm -hmm. and what our preferences come from are that idea of oh it's not hygienic to have an uncircumcised penis or um it looks funny or, you know, all these things that come probably from our religious backgrounds and trickled down into now our culture. That's not really religious at this state in the game. I wouldn't say overall, we're kind of a mixed bag. So yeah, Agreed. we need to be the ones saying like, it's great either way. Let's yeah. leave it alone and let it be as healthy as possible. Always strive for healthy over anything else. Yeah. Intact. The intact. intact. Yes. Mm -hmm. Whole body. We like it all. Yeah. We like the whole natural body. Mm. It's beautiful. Mm. Oh man. So um, I guess also just for mothers too, mm -hmm. that have circumcised sons and, and they are now aware, um, I guess just really being, um, Gentle really trying about it too. Yeah. But also like really encouraging that sensitive side 
in your son. Yeah. Since that is something that they lost, like maybe always just making that extra effort to encourage that sensitive side Mm -hmm. could be really healing for both the mother and the son. Exactly. Taking, you know what you just named Mercedes. I might, I might call it toxic femininity. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. That's what I call it. (laughs) Yeah. That's the shaming of the man. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I actually, I think when that happens in a female, I call it toxic masculinity in the female as well. So like she's essentially creating the toxic masculine Mm. and because masculinity is an energy that we're just embodying in both whether, whatever sex you're born as you can embody both. So when you're being toxic in a rigid way, you're being toxic masculinity or, you know, you're, you're embodying toxic masculinity. So it's kind of the same either way. I mean, just guys aren't the only ones who have toxic masculinity running through their body. It's all of us. It's a cultural thing, men and women both. So we're all breeding it. Let's turn this thing around girls (laughs) (laughs) and guys. Um, but yeah, Jade, I think that that's an important note because I know how hard that's been for you. You know, we've had this conversation a few times, just us together and with other guests on the show around this idea of circumcision and how to reframe our brains around that. Um, and maybe it's too giving, like maybe, is there a good time you think to bring that up with your child later in life? Like if you did circumcise That's a, a really good question. Yeah. Ooh. I don't Fantastic know. Fantastic question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't really honestly feel totally qualified on that one with kids, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I planned on it. The teaching moment. I would look for the teaching, the teaching moment. moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what they say? Yes. Like, when, instead of having that one big sex talk, just constantly look for when they make a comment or an inquiry yeah. or when it comes up in media. That's just, true. Cause it's so, coming. It, it, mm-hmm. so many things come up in media. Mm-hmm. And that those are great opportunities to be like, hey, sweetheart, what did you think about that? What did you notice about that scene? Right. Or, you know, even when there's domestic violence, you know, mm-hmm. like, hey, what did you notice? What did you think about what he said? And she said, yeah, I didn't like that either. You know, really mm-hmm. just keep, they, they're exposed all the time yeah. to these yeah. big adult ideas. And I think it's up to us to notice that and then go ahead and talk with them about it and explain a lot deeper what's going on. Yeah. Instead of steer away from the question because we're afraid to answer it. That's, I mean, I am not a parent, so I can't even begin to, you know, understand, but just in relationship with any person, it's like, you know, when those topics come up, when you're just like, I don't want to deal with it, but you know, you have to, because it's only going to get worse and bigger and cause a Mm -hmm. thing between you. So, all right, ladies listening and, and men, if you're a parent and you're dealing with this situation with a son of yours, we, we got your back. We'll support you. We'll have the conversation with you if you need it. This is the end of part one. Tune in next week for part two. We'll see you there. It's the magic hour. Mercedes and Jay.